All right. Well, we're going to take our Bibles together and uh, turn to Genesis chapter 11. Text we're focusing on this morning is chapter, chapter 11, 10 through 31, verses 10 through 31. That's where you'll find where we're focused this morning. And I'll allow you to, some time to turn there. Page 8, if you're using the church Bible. Uh, before I read this, uh, I want to pray for us. So I invite you to join me as we ask for the Lord's help during this time. Let's pray. We sang a few moments ago, It is well with my soul. And it can be well with our souls because we know our sins have been nailed to the cross. And where we find that truth is in your word. And so, Father, indeed, it is a true thing to say, if we take your word to heart, it will be well with our souls. And that's my prayer for all of us this morning, that as we hear your word, that it will be well with each of our souls. So we ask, Father, that you would use this time of proclaiming your word, accomplish in us what a mere man cannot do. We ask that you do that by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, um, cause Christ himself to be exalted in this time. And we ask it in his name. Amen. I have shared uh, recently that I started looking into my own ancestry. Uh, actually, I kind of stumbled into it. I was looking for a sermon illustration, uh, and then I just kept going. Uh, but I, I didn't get very far in terms of what I found out. Uh, my, my ancestors are Czech immigrants, uh, so I couldn't really find anything beyond my own grandparents on my uh, mother's side. And on my father's side, I got as far as my great-grandfather, um, and I was able to download a picture of the ship that he came in on and likewise the ship that my grand, great-grandfather came on. They came separately uh, where they landed in uh, Montreal and then eventually made their way to Minnetonis, Manitoba. I don't have much. And I think the, the reality of it is that really who cares about some Czech immigrants? In fact, when you're poor and you don't have much, you're not really concerned about preserving the information from your family. I've stopped my search, though, because it's really kind of expensive. If you've ever been on one of those apps, you know, they suck you in with the free month, and then all of a sudden you're paying 40 bucks a month. Thinking, 40 bucks a month for what? So I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with that. Uh, my ancestral line is really not that interesting, and it's really no value for my faith. But when we turn to the Bible, there is far more than interest and curiosity to include a list of descendants like we're going to read about now. So I've set it up that way because this matters. Now I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 11, 10 through 31. And the temptation would be just a bunch of names, tune out. So I'm, I'm encouraging you to follow along in your own Bible. So let's hear the word of the Lord together. Genesis chapter 11. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered 
Arpashad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and other, had other sons and daughters. When Peleg lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Ishak. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. I'll remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now I get it. I had to practice reading some of those, and some of you may have an opinion whether I even pronounce them right. Set all that aside. This matters. This matters. Now, some observations. The focus at the beginning of this is on Noah's son, Shem. Now, I'll remind you that Noah's son, Shem, is the one that Noah blessed. The, uh, another observation, the, the pre-flood patriarchs, Adam, Methuselah, for example, they lived much longer. So we can see a change here. Shem lived 600 years, but after that, after a few generations, that's cut in half and then to a third of that. And this, this lineage ends with the family of Terah. Now, by reading the rest of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, we see that the main purpose of what we just read together is to lead us to Abram. So this morning, I want to talk about the significance of Abram. We're being introduced to Abraham. Abram, Abraham, same person. He is later named Abraham. So what I want to do this morning is I want to put our focus on three points as we consider this genealogy. And I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll unpack it as we go. First of all, the significance of Abraham. 
a new beginning. That's the first point. Secondly, the significance of Abraham is God's intervention. And the third significance of Abraham is revealing the Messiah. Revealing the Messiah. So a new beginning, God's intervention, and revealing the Messiah. So, get to unpacking this. A new beginning. What's the significance of Abraham? A new beginning. Now, there are not a lot of situations in life when you get to do a do-over, right? Life's not like a computer. You know, when you get that blue screen of death, what do you do? Well, you just wipe out the operating system, start again, right? It's like nothing ever happened. Hopefully, you've saved your data. But it's not like that in life, is it, with relationships? You don't get a do-over. If you have hurt or betrayed a loved one, you can't erase the past or entirely eliminate the hurt, even if you are forgiven, right? We get that. And the human race as a collective, there are not many do-overs, but God has been gracious and God has been merciful and he has given his image bearers, the human race, a do-over, effectively a new beginning. Abram, in our text, represents a new beginning. But I want to tell you, it was not the first. He was not the first new beginning. God's plan, of course, for humankind, if we go back to the beginning of Genesis, is that, that he would dwell with a man, that man would dwell with him, that there would be this close fellowship. And that Garden of Eden was a kind of a temple, if you will, where, where the man and the Lord dwelled together and that the man could delight in the presence of the Lord. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, they broke that trust and they were ultimately banished from the Lord's presence. Ten generations passed and we read that man had grown so corrupt, so corrupt that the Lord just simply determined to wipe out every breathing creature on the earth along with man, except for Noah and his sons and their wives, his own wife and representative animals. Noah was the do-over. And we're told in the Bible that he is a righteous man, that he was blameless in his generation, that he walked with God. But you know, it didn't take long for things to fall apart again. Not long after leaving the ark. Well, let's call it Noah's incident of his indecency. That was his drunkenness, where he lay naked in his tent. And Ham saw it, told his brothers. Ham probably shamed his father Noah to his brothers. Noah heard of it and brought a curse on Ham, but ultimately brought that curse on Ham's son Canaan. But in that context, the Lord, through Noah, brought a blessing to his son Shem. Shem sought to honor his father in the moment of his moral weakness. That blessing on Shem was really foreshadowing a unique people from among the nations of the earth. But just like the Lord warned Cain, evil always seems to be crouching at the door. It's just there. It seems to find its way back in. And that trajectory of evil is revealed in a kind of a veiled way back in chapter 10. And I'll remind you what it says. 
I don't know that we read this directly last week, but in the middle of that, what are called the table of nations, we see this verse in 1025. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day, in his days, the earth was divided. Now we find out what that means in chapter 11. We dealt with that last week. But Peleg's name means divided. Divided. His, his name is effectively associated with the time in history when Babel was established. Babel is referred to in the beginning of chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. It's that city that was built to the glory of man, not to the glory of God. And that city effectively represented rebellion, the heart of man rebelling against the Lord. And as a result of that, they, were, they had pulled away from the Lord. They had divided themselves from the Lord. They had separated themselves from the Lord, and they were seeking to exalt themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And so what did the Lord do? He confused their language. He divided them from one another because they had distanced themselves from the Lord. Now, you might be asking, what does this have to do with Abram? And why am I bringing it up? Well, if you look at the table of nations back in chapter 10, Shem's line, he's a son of Noah, the one who was blessed, beginning in 1021, it takes a path there, not through Peleg, but the other brother, Joktan. Now, here we are in chapter 12. The descendants of Noah through Shem take the fork now through Peleg, and they end up with Terah and his sons, Abram, Haran, and Nahor. Now, and I think we're supposed to get the sense that, okay, it's going to go better with these guys. So the question I was asking, is this line of Shem through Peleg unstained by the rest of the wickedness in the world? The answer is no. And all we have to do is look at where they are living. So I'll take you back to our text. Verses 27 through 32. You have to be following in your Bible to kind of track with me on these things. Verses 27 through 32 in our text provide us with the details about Terah's descendants. Verse 28 tells us they, they are living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur is part of the civilization built around Babel, also known as Babylon. Babel, Babylon, same Hebrew word. So after you get out of Genesis, the word Babel is ultimately translated Babylon. Babylon, Babel, meaning confusion. It's both a physical civilization as well as a spiritual reality. That's what Babel, Babylon is. And let me just take you, just so you get a sense of the, the, the heaviness of this or how, how uh, so rebellious it was ingrained into the very city of Babylon, the very nation or the civilization of Babylon. Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon is so named there, Daystar. If you have a King James Bible, he's named Lucifer. This king represents all that is opposed to God. And perhaps, perhaps some scholars think this is describing Satan. But here, here is what the pronouncement is against this day star, this Lucifer. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
hear that language, how similar it is to Genesis 11, 4, where the builders of Babel say, come, let us build a city. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. See what Babel, Babylon is. It's the type for that self-determined place, the worldly system that ultimately rejects the Lord's authority, that despises God's laws. If we look in Revelation, we see it described this way, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. This is where Terah and his family are living. This is home. Terah and his family including Abram, including Sarai, including Lot. They are about as far away from the Lord as they possibly could be. And it's not as if they are righteous people trying to keep themselves unstained by the rest of society. No, they're all in living as pagans. And how do we know that? We get more detail from Joshua. There the Lord reminded the Israelites of of their own history, going back to Abraham or Abram, as he's referred to here in the early part of Genesis. Here's what it says in Joshua. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, served other gods. It's right there in Joshua 24.2. So there were 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and the earth was corrupt. We have 10 generations from Noah's son, Shem, the blessed son, to Abram. And what are they doing? They're worshiping idols. (laughs) So what now? Another reset? Another do-over? Now we know from the Noah story that God promised not to wipe the earth out again. He wasn't going to do that. So what did he determine to do? The Lord determined to begin again by setting apart a people from within the human race. And God begins to move their hearts. I take it that it is by divine direction that Terah, the father of Abram, gets it in his mind to take his family to the land of Canaan. We see that in verse 31. Now, I don't know why. We're not told in the text, so I did a little speculating. Was it because his son Haran died there in Ur? That's in verse 28. Maybe there was something in Ur that caused his premature death, so he did not outlive his father. That is unnatural, and we can all attest to that. Any parent who outlives a child knows the grief. This ought not to be. Children should outlive their parents. So he left Haran. We don't know why, but here Canaan is the goal. And again, this is foreshadowing where one day those wandering Israelite tribes will eventually find a home. So what happens? Terah sets out and heads northward. Now, now the land of Canaan is straight west, but there's the Arabian desert in the way. So he heads north. He stops at Haran. That's not to be confused with the son Haran, but the city of Haran. He stops there and he settles. Now in all of this, God is working his plan. And all of this is ultimately driving towards introducing Abram. Abram. Abram's name means exalted father. Abram would be the patriarch of this set-apart people. Now, with all that we know about Abram and where he came from and all that led up to him, 
Does this look like the patriarch of a set-apart people? God set apart an idol worshiper. He didn't keep him as an idol worshiper, to be sure, but he took an idol worshiper to be the father of a great nation. And we're going to see how that happens in the next chapter. But for now, just see what the Lord chooses to be, this exalted father. So what is it that was exalted about Abram? What was in his life that was exalted? Well, nothing in particular that he had done. What is exalted about Abram is simply that God decided to make him the father of a great nation. That is it. God set him apart. God made him who he is. God didn't choose him because he looked and saw a particularly righteous man. God picked Abram and determined that he was going to be the father of a great nation, a set-apart people. It would be a new beginning not only for the human race as a select people from within them, but also a new beginning for Abram himself. Now listen, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ today, that means you have, you have trusted in him. That is to say, you've trusted in Jesus' death on the cross, that it was for you. You know in looking to Christ that, that he is the son of God who became a man so that at his death all your sins could be forgiving forgiven. He is the one who ultimately paid your moral debt before God. And if you've looked to him in faith, you, you truly believe that he rose from the grave on that third day, that he has in fact conquered the power of sin and death, and that he in his death and resurrection grants that same power of life to all who believe in him. So let me ask you, if this is you this morning, what part did you play in this? What did you do? Again, did Abram make himself the exalted father? No, it was God's doing. Did, did he think about how he might begin a new society that honored Yahweh? Was that in his mind? No, he, he bowed down to idols in Babylon like the rest of those who lived in Ur among the Chaldeans. Abram brought nothing at all to the table. And I want to assure you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that is true for each of us as well. Your new beginning was all of God's doing. If you're in Christ today, it was all of God's doing. The Apostle Paul writes, I quote this often, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, perhaps you memorized it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Think about that phrase, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. See, what that verse does not say, I think is telling. Now, I understand there's some ways that people describe a believer in Jesus, a Christian. And they might say it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he changed his life. If anyone is in Christ, he took a different path. If anyone is in Christ, he pulled himself up by the bootstraps. If anyone is in Christ, he found Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he invited Jesus into his heart. If anyone is in Christ, he made Jesus Lord of his life. Now, perhaps we've used some of that language, but really it does not adequately describe how you became a child of God. A new creation is something that God the Holy Spirit has done. So here's the good news. No matter where 
you have come from. God can give you a new beginning. He does not have to turn back time. God can take an idol worshiper like Abram. He can take, he can take an adulterer, a drunkard, a covetous, murderous, thieving, apparently good on the outside, yet internally self-righteous person, and God can make them new. And such were some of you, and such was me. So you may have written yourself off, but God has not. So let me urge you, if you have not done so, trust Christ today. For if you do, it is because God has, some, has done something in you that you could not have done for yourself. Significance of Abram is a new beginning. Well, the second significance I want to focus on is God's intervention. God's intervention. Now, it seems to me uh, that regardless of people's religious identity, and I'm speaking broadly in our culture, the predominant view that many hold is one that is generally naturalistic. A naturalist. Saying somebody's a naturalist is kind of an imprecise label, but, but it's, it's, it's a general idea that naturalists hold to, and I think this is predominant in our culture, that, and I'm quoting here, this is from uh, Stanford en uh, Encyclopedia of Philosophy, but this is the quote, reality, the naturalist holds that reality is exhausted by nature, containing nothing supernatural and that the scientific method should be used to investigate all areas of reality, including the human spirit. That's the naturalist view. So we hear all the time declarations to believe the science, trust the science. Scientific inquiry is not a, a problem, but, but when that is held up over and above every other truth claim, it's presumed to be this statement of intellectual superiority over against any who would live as if God intervenes in the course of human history to carry out ultimately his grand purposes. But I think you know this. Science has no explanation for Abram and his generations. Now the Israelites knew that they were all descended from Abram. So again, the setting for hearing this, this text of Scripture that we read this morning in the context of the whole Pentateuch, the setting is the Israelites are about to cross the Jordan and possess the land of Canaan. They're getting this big review. Here's who you are. Here's where you've come from. They knew as a people that they were descended from Abraham. They called him Father Abraham. And in looking back, what they needed to understand is that they didn't get where they were apart from God intervening in the course of human events to ensure that they would indeed exist as a people. This is what I mean. We're told this regarding Abram, verse 29 of the text that we read. And Abram and Nahor took wives. Simple point of fact, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Good to know. But then... This is included, verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. No further commentary right then. Now we'll get to that later. But right there, 
Sarah's, Sarai's barrenness is really an insignificant fact, uh, in, an insignificant fact, unless you are, in fact, a descendant of Abraham. See, as an Israelite, you're going to feel the tension of this reality. How does a man whose name means exalted father get that name with a wife that is barren? So as an Israelite, you might be thinking, oh, here I am. I'm with this multitude looking over the Jordan. We're about to take the land that God promised only because Sarai did not remain barren. Someone intervened. Now, through telling this story, this history, highlighting particular facts, the Lord is saying through Moses, I made you a people. The Lord is saying, I called you out as a people. I established you as a people. You see, left to their own abilities and simply the happenstance of life events, Abram would have been a dead end. But God intervened. Now, the fact that God did and indeed does intervene is an unmistakable fact that we've already encountered in Genesis. After um, Adam and Eve sinned, God intervened, didn't he? He provided animal skins to cover their shame. God intervened by not allowing Enoch, that is the descendant of Seth. He intervened, allowing him not to taste death. That was God's doing. He intervened. God intervened by setting apart Noah and his family and representative animals for salvation and then wiping out every other living creature by a flood. God intervened by confusing the language of the Babylites, forcing them to be dispersed. So knowing this truth, what, what should we do? What should we do knowing that God intervenes? If you're in Christ, know this. You are counted among the righteous. So what the righteous should do, according to the scriptures, is the righteous should pray because God does intervene. Jesus, the Son of God, prayed to his Father and told us through his disciples that we should pray to his Father who is our Father. We pray, brothers and sisters, because God still intervenes. He does. The Lord is far from the wicked, it says in Proverbs 15, 29. But he hears the prayer of the righteous. He hears the prayer. James writes that we should pray for healing, both physical and spiritual. James 5, 16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then we're told just straight out, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, of course, if your heart is set on evil, don't expect God to intervene. But you can be sure of this, that he delights in hearing our prayers for righteous desires. 1 Peter 3.12 just to pile on, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now again, you are righteous in God's sight if you have put your trust in Christ. You're counted righteous. That is your status before the Lord. If you have truly faith in Jesus, you are the righteous. And God's ears are open to your prayers. So knowing that God intervenes, how might we pray? Pray 
that you would love God. Pray. We don't come to God presuming that we already love him like we ought. So pray, God, make me love you, heart, soul, and mind. And God, make me love my neighbor as myself. We should pray for God to bless us, but in order that that blessing may be to empower our obedience and service. God, bless me that I may serve you. Bless me that I may serve others. That's a good prayer. Pray for an appetite for what is pure and holy. God, cause me to love the things that you love. Cause me to love what is pure and holy and righteous. God, cause me to hate what you hate, to loathe sin, and especially the sin that remains in myself. Pray that God would save people, that God would be merciful to your loved ones. Pray for our church to always keep exalting Jesus by proclaiming the gospel. Pray that we will be effective in growing disciples. There are a host of other things that you can pray for, but we pray because God intervenes. The scriptures tell us that. And we've seen evidence of it, haven't we not? Now, it's also true that God may not intervene. He didn't intervene to prevent Eve from taking that forbidden fruit. He told her not to take it, but he didn't stop her. He didn't intervene to prevent Cain from killing Abel. He may not intervene and take away your cancer. He may not heal your baby. He may not provide you with a better job. And he may not prevent you from sinning because you acted rebelliously. Now, if, if God does not intervene in the way that you might expect or have initially hoped for, know this, God works in other ways, and it's called providence. Providence is God preserving and governing all things by means of other causes, secondary causes. And providence can use even evil acts and bring good, good, true, eternal, lasting good without approving of the evil. This is the amazing thing about God's providence. And I'll point you to the fact of the greatest act of God's providence that there ever was. The Son of God, in a hideous act of evil, was falsely accused by the religious leaders of his day. He was turned over to Roman authorities and he was crucified on a cross. It was an evil act, evil to the core. The evil intention of these religious leaders of his day offered up Jesus. But in it, God ensured a holy and righteous outcome. That's providence. And in it, God counted that death as a vicarious sacrifice for all who would look to him in faith. The greatest act of God's providence ever. God acted providentially. He worked in the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who didn't get the answer to his prayer that he wanted when he pleaded with God, remove this thorn in my flesh. That's some kind of ailment or, or impediment that he, that he desperately wanted the Lord to take away. 
But God didn't. Instead, God provided grace. Grace that was sufficient. Everything he needed so that Paul would experience God's power in spite of his own profound weakness. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. So just like he did with Abraham, be sure of this. God does and God will intervene either by doing something unexpected or specific answer to prayer or using the stuff that just happens for his own glory and eternal good. So here's a memory verse. For those who love God, it's Romans 8, 28, 29, often quoted. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be, here's the point, conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The significance of Abraham. God intervenes. Well, third, significance of Abraham, Abram, is the revelation of Messiah. Now, if you've stood close to uh, a mosaic, I've only seen these in pictures, but I've, I've seen uh, at least pictures of Byzantine art. That's what I'm talking about. You see those beautiful pieces of tile or, or marble or glass or stone. If you're standing close, you see that. And you might see a pattern in the way that they're arranged. But it's not until you take several steps back that you see what all of those individual pieces considered together are depicting. And we get this. With, with a mosaic, you have to step back and get the big picture. Now, for us to get the most sense out of this list of Shem's descendants leading to Abram, we need to step back and get a bigger picture to see that the ultimate goal is revealing the Messiah, pointing us to Jesus Christ, the God-man. That's the, the ultimate, that's the, the big picture mosaic. So we're looking at the line of Shem through Abram. But just as Jesus said about the temple and about the prophet Jonah is also true of Abraham. Something greater is here. So to get that big picture, we have to look back and then we have to look ahead. First, looking back. First, we look back. When the Lord cursed the serpent in the garden, this is after Adam and Eve took the, took the fruit and, and committed that sin of rebellion. He included in the curse on that serpent this promise. We refer to this often. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So the serpent, you, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. Now on the surface, it looks like girls don't like snakes. But it's more than that. It's more than that. I don't like snakes either. It goes on. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He, speaking to the serpent, he, the seed, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, serpent, 
And you? You shall bruise his heel. Well, it's kind of veiled. What does this mean? It means that God's promise that the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 would have his heel bruised by the serpent, while the serpent would be bruised or crushed by the seed of the woman. And so from Seth to Noah to Shem to Abraham, Genesis has been leading us to look for that offspring. Now here we are at Abram. And what do we got to do? We got to look forward now. Looking forward. People along the way who were descended from Abraham, who were descended from Noah, Seth, and Adam before them. They progressively revealed more and more who the seed of the woman would be. All of these throughout the unveiling of Scripture were, were types pointing to Christ. Reading through the rest of the Old Testament, we're still looking for the offspring. We find out that he is a prophet, like Moses, but better. He is a priest, like Aaron, but better. He is a king, like David, but better. No, but looking further forward, not to the end of Genesis, not to the end of the Pentateuch, not stopping at the prophets and Psalms, but crossing into the New Testament, we come to Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, 34 to 38. And what you're going to see there is that Luke lists this genealogy and it lines up with Genesis 11, 10 through 28. And it lines up with Genesis 5. A brief aside, for those of you who are going to study the lists this afternoon, you're going to see an extra name there. I do need to, to talk about this. There's an extra Canaan in Luke's genealogy. Some scholars suggest it was a copying error from the Septuagint. That's the Greek Old Testament. Or that Luke is correct and the copying error happened in certain old manuscripts. But, but there's, no, there's no threat to the reliability of the Scripture. I need to assure you of that. So if you get there and you go, whoa, 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 what's going on here? It does not undermine in any way the authority of Scripture. Other than that anomaly, the genealogies are identical. So what Luke understands is that Genesis 11, 10 through 28 is there ultimately to reveal the Messiah. That's the purpose of it. That's the big picture. It's not about Abraham. It's not about Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons, primarily, though they're in the story. It's not about King David. It's not about the prophets. It's about Jesus. Before Abraham, before Noah, before Adam, before anything in Scripture, there was the Son of God. Before creation itself, he was counted as slain for the sins of the people of God, the people that God had determined to set apart unto himself. Peter writes this in his first letter. The, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20. So yes, the Messiah was revealed for our, our salvation. That is true. But I want to suggest to you, brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, there is an even greater reason. We get the great eternal benefit of salvation in Jesus Christ because he was revealed, yes. But there's a bigger, bigger reason. 
And we find this in Philippians. Chapter 2. I read this often. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by becoming, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that's what he did. Why? Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, it's critical, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the purpose for Jesus being revealed as the Messiah is that he would be exalted before all creation, that he would be worshipped so that's the reason for the genealogy from seth to abram and i'm not overstating this the purpose of it is that christ would be exalted that christ would be exalted is the reason for adam it's the reason for noah it's the reason for abraham for moses for david all the prophets the apostles he is the reason for the church he is the reason for creation itself and exalting Christ is the reason for you. We exist, brothers and sisters, primarily as a means for exalting Christ. That's why we exalt him when we gather together. Now, if you don't know this fact, there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians because they've said they've trusted in Jesus. He forgave my sins. But if you forget that the primary reason for it is the exaltation of Jesus, the Son of God, you're at risk of going off the rails. And you will come to the point in your life when you're wondering, is it even worth trusting and following Christ? Earlier this week, there's no secret because it's on Facebook, a former church member, he moved away several years ago, he announced to his own church, where he is now a member, or at least was, he announced this on Facebook and all his virtual connections, that he no longer holds to the inerrancy of Scripture. And this lengthy post that he put down, which, which shocked me and others here who know him, he reveals the reason. He intends to pursue a homosexual relationship. Now, I'm not denying that he's got real temptations. I'm not denying that he has desires and that he has had perhaps those desires for a long time. But it comes down to this. And this is my conclusion. I don't think he sees it. He wants to live not for the glory of Jesus, but for his own passions. That's just what it comes down to. If we look at trusting in Christ as the means to affirming what we just want to do all along, then we're not really trusting him. If we don't see that the whole purpose of our existence in being brought to faith in Jesus is so that Christ himself could be exalted, then we're at great risk of going off the rails. So brothers and sisters, keep as your primary motivation, keep Jesus before you. He is the reason for a genealogy. He is the reason for this church. He is the reason for you. 
We face that decision every single day. Every moment of every day is the thing I'm going to do in this next moment for, for the glory of Jesus or for my own. I've got to answer that question. Well, the genealogy is there to reveal the Messiah. And the Messiah has been revealed so that all creation could bring glory to him. So that's what I see in this genealogy. If you're far from Christ, there's an opportunity for a new beginning. God can take anyone. So, don't think you're beyond the possibility of saving. And know this, believers. God intervenes. Pray. Pray. Let's gather to pray together. Let's pray in care groups. Let's be in prayer. Trusting that God intervenes for His own glory and for your good. And finally, let's live our lives every moment thinking how can I bring glory to Jesus? Now, it's not something you can do in your own power. I get that. But when you put your focus on Christ himself, as the hymn writer says, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of knowing you. And while we gain uh, eternal and uncountable benefits, the fact that we get to know you and your son is ultimately about exalting Jesus. So, so help us, Father. Help us be people who live to exalt Jesus in all that we do. May it be and hold us faithful to that day when Christ returns. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.